it can actually be a battalion task force assigned to one building. The roads, uh, you know, a funnel for bullets. And so you don't want to move out on the streets if ideally you're moving between buildings. So they're building breaches between walls of buildings, you know, these concrete walls so that the, the troops can move safely and not come under attack as they move from one building to the next or one block to the next. The case study of Suez City that we wrote for the Urban Warfare Project, it shows what happens if you sequence arms rather than combining arms. It'll be the engineers will be the main effort for, for a brief period of time. Then the tank, the armor may be, and then it'll be the infantry, right? Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and I'm joined on this episode by two guests who have long been instrumental parts of MWI. Liam Collins was the founding director of the Institute, and John Spencer currently serves as MWI's chair of urban warfare studies. As former army officers with a variety of combat experience between them, and as co-authors of a book on urban warfare, I wanted to get their perspectives on what is expected to be a heavily urban battle if Israeli ground forces enter Gaza, which they appear primed to do. In particular, I wanted to discuss how an Israeli force must utilize a variety of capabilities in concert with one another to achieve specified objectives. This is fundamentally what we call combined arms. And as you'll hear from Liam and John, it is exceptionally important and can be very difficult in urban areas. I really enjoyed hearing their thoughts and I hope listeners will as well. Before we get to the conversation, a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Liam Collins and John Spencer. Liam and John, thank you both for taking some time out of what I'm sure are, are pretty busy schedules for both of you to join me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back, John. So, you know, for the past 10 days or so, we've all been watching very closely what's happening in Israel and Gaza. I'm sure that's true of most of our listeners as well. And as I was sort of giving some thought to what subject we could uh, we could feature on this episode, you know, because everywhere you turn, people are naturally talking about this. I, I really kind of wanted to to focus on something unique uh, you know, find a place where we could maybe add to the conversation. And what I landed on was this. Um, you both know, obviously, John, you're heavily involved with it. Uh, we feature a lot of work on the challenges of urban warfare at MWI. And and what routinely comes up in those discussions is the importance of combined arms in urban terrain. And now combined arms maneuver is obviously something the U.S. Army does. It's in our doctrine. It's a dominant way that modern land forces around the world intend to operate on the battlefield. But, but it's especially important in urban areas. So, you know, as we see Israeli ground forces massing around Gaza, uh, and 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 this offensive sort of at least seems to be looming. Um, you know, Gaza is heavily urbanized territory. We should expect combined arms to be a really important feature of of any battle that takes shape. So, the two of you wrote a book together on urban warfare. You understand this pretty intuitively, but you know, John, maybe if we can start with you and you can kick us off by explaining why combined arms is so crucial in urban operations. Sure. Thanks, John. Yeah, I mean, yeah, combined arms, you know, by definition, it, it has a simple meaning and it has a complex meaning. It, it literally just means putting together all combat arms and related elements to achieve your your goal. In a fight like this, though, in urban combat, you know, each you know, the mission is very important. But what we think the mission in um, Gaza or a contested urban environment where the defender is already there. History shows what combined 
what arms you need to combine and why in a fight like this. I mean, it really, although the evolution of combined arms maneuver, which I don't go down that way. I mean, it really started with the tank, the airplane and the radio and combining those with stormtroop tactics. But in this type of fight, the critical arms in which Israel knows how to combine, and we can talk about that. Like they, this is not a new operation for them is to combine engineers, armor, infantry, and artillery uniquely together in almost a siege-busting train, uh, put all together, each one supporting each other to achieve the goal, which is to enter, no matter how contested, the urban train and clear it. You mentioned what what uh, what most people think of when they think of combined arms, and that's combat arms, right? Infantry, armor, and artillery. But you also mentioned engineers, and I think that's really important. Liam, you have you have experience as an engineer officer in the army. Uh, you know what is the specific role of engineers in 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 this sort of construct? Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. In an urban environment, what's so challenging is just the obstacles that can that can be produced. I mean, just think. Uh, I mean, days of air attack have rubbled the city. And sometimes the defender will self-rubble to make obstacles. Uh, and so you've got to clear those obstacles that are uh, that make movement difficult, that can even stop tracked vehicles. So you got to get through there. Uh, the enemy, in terms of right their defensive position, I mean, in an urban environment, almost every room in a concrete jungle can be a, uh, you, you know, a ready-made defensive position. And so they've got to help breach those obstacles. And then ultimately, right, even when you're on the offensive, you got to establish a hasty defense, right? So as the Israeli attack moves on, and then they've got to pause, conduct operational pauses, they've got to think about how do they set up, you know, a hasty defense to protect their fighters from from Hamas counterattacks. And and then not to mention, right, booby traps and, and, uh, and all those kind of things are going to be littered throughout the city. We've seen IDF ground forces, Again, kind of massing specifically along the northern edge of Gaza. Uh, so, unless that's a you know a, a, a very large scale case of military deception, which I, I kind of doubt that it is, it's likely that that's where any offensive will uh, will begin. So, as they cross that boundary and begin moving into Gaza on a practical level, what does breaching actually look like for you know for those of us who who aren't engineers that haven't trained on on breaching tactics? Is it mainly you know clearing obstacles, as you said, and reducing defensive positions? Exactly. In the city itself, right? Once they get in there, right? Any of the obstacles that they have that are, right, uh, intentionally, uh, the rubble, those kind of things, the booby traps that the, the, uh, they set up, or really just moving between buildings and build, uh, buildings, right? Because often in an urban environment, the, the, the roads, uh, you know, a funnel for bullets. And so you don't want to move out on the streets if ideally you're moving between buildings. So they're building breaches between walls of buildings, you know, these concrete walls so that the, the troops can move safely and not come under attack as they move from one building to the next or one block to the next. Uh, and, and so it's not just, you know, thinking of obstacles, but how do you actually conduct movement and, and do it in a safe manner? John, you and I were in in Iraq at the same time, uh, in Baghdad actually at the same time in in adjacent areas of operations. My brigade combat team had an armor battalion, one six six armor, and they had tanks, and those tanks remained parked for the entire deployment. You know, obviously the the requirements are very different in that context. This was mostly counterinsurgency, stability operations, and and tanks don't don't add nearly as much value there as they do in say high intensity uh, kinetic operations. But those parked tanks, I think, also hint at a pretty basic truth, uh, which is that 
you know, dense urban terrain is very different from the type of environments where tanks have been decisive since since their early development. Um, they are, you know, frankly, much better suited to open terrain. Now, some might argue that uh, they therefore have limited value in cities, but you take the the very opposite position that, uh, in fact, it would be sort of the the height of foolishness to enter a city without tanks. Can you explain why? Sure. I mean, I, in the vignette, I can use is well. Let's say let's stay to the same context because it actually is. Um, I interviewed General Finkel for the Israeli way of warfare. And said you know, basically no smart soldier enters an urban environment without a tank uh, because of the fact that of the mobile protected firepower um, in a contested urban environment. There will be threats from 360 directions to include underground. Right. And that's, again, one of the engineer assets that the Israel has that no other does is a, a complete giant unit designed for the subterranean threat, which is a part of that engineer. But the tank itself, as you enter an urban environment with all the inherent defensive qualities that the defender already gets, right? He doesn't have to build defensive positions. He can use strong steel re- rebar reinforced concrete buildings to strong point. Um, and surprise the force coming in. There's no other vehicle that provides the protection of a tank that can take a, a hit from almost everything uh, in order to get into the urban environment along with the engineers. I mean, the Israelis lead with engineers, right? They lead with that D9 bulldozer that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of because it, it is what you need to clear mobility corridors and take punches from the enemy within the urban environment. But once you get in there, right, and you follow the, the infantry to support, there's there's few other vehicles you can provide precision firepower that can punch through concrete walls. That's a tank. Although you know people think that the tank you know, has this sole purpose of tank on tank warfare, that's just not true. I mean, this is in a decisive battle, which this is again, why is the why would the Israel Defense Forces focus on the urban environments? Well, that's where their objective is achieved. That will be the decisive battles. You need the capability to enter where the enemy doesn't want you to enter. And if you go in without a tank, it's, it just ends up being a bloodbath. I mean, that's historical. That's not opinion. But, and John, going back to what you, we kind of started with combined arms, but if you enter with only a tank, then right. it's vulnerable as well, right? right? And so you've got to have like the dismounted infantry, all these supporting assets kind of going in as a synchronized maneuver. Right. Otherwise, the tank, it, it does become vulnerable, right, with anti-tank missiles at the uh, that no doubt the the Hamas has more capability than they had back in the 20, 2009 and 2014 ground invasions into Gaza, right? Drone capabilities that we've seen elsewhere in the world, you know, most recently up in, up in Ukraine. And so you can assume they're going to have those capabilities, but that doesn't mean, right, that, that the tank is a museum piece anymore. As John said, it's absolutely critical part of that urban fight. Yeah, I mean, you don't conduct an operation like this without that. I mean, and Israel is the you know the the case study of Suez City that we wrote for the Urban Warfare Project. It shows what happens if you sequence arms rather than combining arms, right? If you send tanks first, then infantry, then or whatever, it ends up going very badly. And and the Russians have learned that in Ukraine. I mean, it's only the people that can combine all these critical elements of the recipe at the right time to achieve their goal in this urban environment. And this is why, again, why urban warfare continues to happen in dense urban areas is because of how much of a challenge it is. Of course, this would be a joint 
you know, multi-domain operation. But when you get down to it, it doesn't matter how many divisions you throw at a city, it ends up being focused down to a single point. And if you don't have each part of these combined arms, it leads to a lot of loss that you otherwise wouldn't take. John, you spent uh, 25 years in the infantry. How much of a mindset change is required by operating in combined arms formations. You know, when you know when there are times as a dismounted light infantry element where your sole job might be protecting tanks or armored vehicles. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, one, just a cognitive, you know, motivation. When you hear a tank and you're an infantryman on the street and you hear a tank coming down the street, um, when all the dangers of the urban environment and the unknowns of where the enemy is, that's a huge asset. And then you know that you're helping support it achieve its mission, which is to destroy the enemy. Uh, what the challenge is, though, that mo- all militaries train these different arms de- separately, right? You train infantry, you train the armor battalion, you train the engineers, and you, the art- everybody trains separately. But then you have to rapidly combine together, like I did um, in my later deployments as a as an armor battalion, uh, a mechanized infantry commander in an armor battalion, who, and this is what Israel did in 2014, um, when the mission comes, mission tailor formations with all these vital pieces, all the way down to the company team level where you have Bradley's infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, and then infantry who had to quickly remember how to work together. Um, and sometimes that's, that is a challenge, if not trained together, which which actually doesn't happen a lot in militaries. Liam, I mentioned that you had been an engineer officer, but you spent much of your career in special operations units. Israel has obviously a, a, a number of different types of, of elite specialized units. What's their role in a fight like this? Yeah, I, I think in this case, it's really right. Think about where the target is that they're after. They're typically going to be used against high value targets because they're a limited asset. Uh, and so you're not going to employ them in a way you would, if you can do an infantry squad or infantry company can go at the target, they're, they're not going to go pursue that. So they're most likely going to go maybe in a hostage rescue role, right? But that will take extremely precise intelligence. It's going to be challenging to find those, but really kind of high value targets that probably aren't located where the bulk of the attack is going to be happening, right? Because if it's where the where where, where the division is located, they, they've got that ground. Infantry units are more than capable of doing that. So we're probably going to be really at, at, at you know, off, you know, locations that are not where the bulk of the Israeli forces. And then that's when you're going to go use them to strike those high value targets, either leadership, financiers, right, logisticians, these kind of things that's important the Hamas network. Yeah, this is about, you know, um, a fight like this isn't, isn't an infantry fight, right? That's the, that's the urban legend of all um, really militaries that or the urban fight is an infantry fight. Absolutely not. It's a combined arms fight to include with special forces and lots of history from the second battle of Fallujah to Marari. I mean, all of them where you can use special forces who, who contain a real uh, bulk of snipers to overwatch those vulnerable lead forces where the battle gets down to like small groups of literally, you know, platoon size. Uh, a lot of special forces have been used in the past to, as in a supporting role, to provide that long-range precision fire overwatch of that engineer element trying to clear that obstacle, whatever it is. Yeah, and, when, and, and think of it this in terms of right combined arms. When I say infantry fight, I mean I'm thinking generally there they might be the, the the main effort in it. But as you kind of opened up with early, it constantly changes, right? It'll be the engineers will be the main effort for for a brief period of time. Then the tank, the armor may be, and then it'll be the infantry, right? And 
and so it's really it's as John's kind of describing, it, it's combined arms. That's the main effort, not necessarily the infantry or the armor or the engineers. I don't think we've explicitly said so yet, but it sounds like this is the type of operation, um, you know, in this type of environment that will necessarily be pretty slow in terms of in terms of the pace of its progress. You know, if we're turning back to the role of special operations forces again, would it make sense to you if you were, you know, if you were planning an operation like this, say, to utilize uh, these forces, special operations forces, for maybe a deeper insertion to seize key terrain and hold it until following forces arrive, uh, or really until the main force arrives? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, we've seen that play out in, in, in urban areas in the past and previous conflicts, right? You might send them down right it, it, right in the heart of the, heart of the city, maybe, and kind of hold that. You might even draw Hamas to them, and then they're fighting from a dis- defensive position, which is advantageous, but holding that until the rest of the, the conventional forces can get to that location. Uh, but one thing I will say, I mean, beside what, what makes the challenging of the combined arms and synchronizing this so difficult is – you know, I don't want to get into it too much in this podcast. We've talked about the challenges of urban terrain, but it is unique, right? The challenges it presents. And so doing this, right, think synchronizing a brigade attack or battalion attack in the woods or in the open fields, it is a completely different story doing it in the city. And you might understand the theoretical concepts of synchronizing operations. And even if you try to war game and go, you know, talk through how you would do it in the city, physically doing it in an urban environment is different. And most units, even at the National Training Center, don't do it or at most do it for maybe half a day. And so our military is complete, would be completely unprepared for doing this kind of operation, despite what they say. And I really don't think the Israelis are particularly prepared for this operation. Uh, and think about this. In 2009 and 2014, they had weeks or months of planning those operations before they did the ground invasion. And this one, right, they're really la- minimal planning before going in. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, the quickness with which reservists were mobilized, in some cases through, um, you know, sort of what's been described as self-mobilization, and and the quickness uh, with which forces were moved into at least what seemed to be staging areas near Gaza, uh, both sort of suggest a, a pretty rapid response. Um, you know, but those ground forces have been there for days now, and I think many of us expect an offensive to commence at any time, but we really don't have any idea. It could conceivably be days more or even weeks. John, when you, what? yeah, go ahead. No, I, I mean, I, so a couple of points on that is that you know, you, you and I have both been to Southern Israel, me, you, and Liam all together, and uh, met with the idea, met with uh, the, the possibility of this operation in this specific environment. And that's the challenge of a like an expeditionary unit, like the U.S., the U.K. All of us um, have is not knowing what city, what environment what challenges um the idf have have not just been planning for this operation for months they have con plans that have been going on for years doesn't make it any easier um for this exact i mean that's one of the uniqueness to the idf and their combined arms to include the development of their tank all their their equipment and forces is that there are only a few environments in which they're going to send the idf into yes the 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 you know the northern mountainous trains of the Golan Heights or or southern Lebanon versus the dense po- urban populated areas in Gaza is totally different, but they've been preparing it. And I think also I agree with you on the time because um, all these forces that we now know are in attack positions or marshaling positions. You can guarantee they're training right now. You train even in war. Uh, and, and this is one of the keys to com- combine our success is the pushing down of all the combined arms to the lowest level and combining them rapidly. 
and then getting those commanders and those troops together and going through all the drills of what does this look like? What does, you know, a, a, a combined arms breach at a, you know, at a, the street level look like? Because in the 2017 Battle of Mosul, the Iraqi military, who was not trained in this operation, even by the U.S. after you know, 11 years, lost like 80 percent of their tanks. So much so that the president of Iraq or the prime minister what, said that you can no longer have tanks in the main combat area, which then increases because they had lost like their national level of tanks in this one battle because they weren't trained in combined arms and they hadn't combined it all, pushed it all down to level. And they were losing tanks at that breach point, which again goes to how much you need engineers, you need artillery smoke, you need so much to where you're doing just breach after breach after breach, trying to breach an enemy who's had, you know, in the case of Mosul, two years to prepare. And now Hamas has had at least nine, if not decades to prepare. So at what level should combined arms happen, uh, so to speak? Should you have a brigade-sized combined arms element, a battalion-sized combined arms element, or is it even smaller than that? Yeah, I think, I mean, personally, that's a great question. And we teach at the 40th Infantry Division Urban Planners course, the only one in the world that, you know, for a brigade, I mean, having an armor battalion and two mechanized infantry units with uh, an artillery battalion and engineer element is a really good uh, tried and true tested kind of formation you need to start with. But I, you know, in the Israel in 2014 pushed this combined arms elements down to the battalion level where you'd have infantry, armor, engineer, and artillery all at the battalion level. I personally, much like I experienced, think it should be all the way down at least some of those arms to the company level where you have tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, engineers with, re you know, the ability to call in those uh, fires all at the company level, because that's where the fight becomes, right? This, this is the nature of the increased density of the world is that like Liam said, this isn't combined arms mover in the open terrain of National Training Center or in the woods of JRTC. This is a, an environment that naturally constrains and breaks apart formations all the way down to where you can only get a few vehicles down the street. This will be at the lowest level. And John, you experienced this in Sadr City yourself, right? That's why you went to company teams. If you think, you know, for the listeners, when you hear it, right, a, a company of tanks has, you know, tanks and then, you know, very few tankers, right? And an infantry mechanized company has the same number of vehicles, but a lot more dismounts. And so you almost have to break it down to the company level uh, to, to get that inherent task organization that you need at the lowest level possible. Right. So you have a, a platoon of tanks and two platoons of mechanized infantry. It's, it's a great a great model um, that allows you to fight these small battles. Because I agree with my, my friend Tony King that this type of battles, right? Not all urban warfare is different, but this type of penetration of a dense urban area requires um, just multiple battles in a day at a very, very small tactical level. I mean, why do, this is you know, a criticism me and Liam get all the time. Like, why do you guys always talk about the tactical level? Why don't you talk about the operational and the strategic level of urban operations? Well, that's because of the nature of urban operations. Yes, you can avoid that. Like there's a couple of ways operation you can approach urban areas. But when urban is the objective, it's the strategic. The strategic objective of Israel is to reduce Hamas military capability in Gaza, which are in the urban areas. That becomes where tactical does have the ability to achieve the strategic goal. Liam, what are some of the 
I guess, leadership challenges that arise in a combined arms context that, you know, that maybe aren't as present if you're, say, commanding and controlling just your own organic formation? Yeah, I mean, anytime, like we talked about, right, if you're retask organizing elements, right, to have company teams, a lot of times they may not have worked together before. So you're throwing them into battle for the first time when they've had maybe a week or two of kind of to get ready and plan for this. And they maybe plan, but not have, haven't really done much in the way of maneuvers, right? Maybe minimal rehearsals. And so you're putting elements out there that really haven't done this before in the most complex environment you have and trying to command control that while you have the te- technological challenge of, right? Sometimes uh, radios, communication, GPS signals don't work the best in cities, right? I mean, think how many times we complain about cell phone coverage in a major city in the U.S. Well, you're going to have those same problems over there with radio communications, uh, right? Cell phones, whatever it is. Uh, and so it's just magnet- magnifying those challenges in the urban environment uh, and then trying to control movement and synchronizing movement when you aren't quite sure where everybody is. Some elements are going to move faster and have more success than others. Uh, and, and so it presents a, a very challenging command and control problem. What is the geometry of these kinds of formations, specifically in urban areas? And Gaza, you know, does have some comparatively more open terrain, to be sure, but a lot of it is urban. Um, You know, with that kind of structural density, are we talking, say, you know, a combined arms battalion sized formation, for instance, might be operating in, you know, the condensed space of just one or two city blocks? It it can be, John. I mean, uh, it can actually be a battalion task force assigned to one building. Um, and that's what we see me and, uh, you know, Jason Giroux are finishing up the Battle of Morari case study where multiple battalion task level task forces had to be formed in the midst of the operation to attack single buildings, which are the strong points that become the real crux where you have entire week long battles over single buildings. So absolutely, uh, this becomes at the you know, a two block area of operation, a one block, literally um, a one block, like your mission is to clear this one block. Uh, and it takes over a battalion of combined arms capability to do that. John, and just to put it, and we, we talked about this before the podcast started, but to put it in perspective for the listeners, like the entire Gaza strip is basically six Manhattans, right? Six Manhattan in the U S so kind of two lengthwise and kind of three side by side on, on, on width wise. And so Gaza City, right, where they're doing this operation is probably one the size of one or two Manhattans. Obviously not, right, as much of the superstructure and the buildings aren't as tall. But in terms of, right, square kilometers, it's a significant area. And you're trying to figure out, like, as John said, if, if you put, if one battalion just takes one block, right, or one street, you can quickly see how quickly that exhausts your troops that you're throwing at this problem. So it's not a matter of just going and flooding the city with troops because you could throw everything Israel has and it would just take a small portion of the city. Yeah. That's why they become, you know, like uh, my friend David Kukola says, cities become sponges that soak up armies, but that isn't, doesn't mean as a deterrent as is not possible. It's absolutely possible to do this mission. It's absolutely possible for the IDF to accomplish their mission. Now, now you have to talk about the costs. Yeah, that subject of, of geographic scale leads us into what I think is a really important question, uh, which is, you know, how many forces will an operation in Gaza require? There are obviously a lot of variables um, that that determine that. The biggest one, of course, is what objectives Israel seeks to accomplish, uh, because, you know, it's natural. Limited objectives require fewer resources, and more comprehensive ones uh, require much greater resources, 
like manpower. But you know, one of those variables is the physical scale of the area of operations. Another one is the size of the enemy force. You know, there's there's conventional wisdom that an attacking force must be what it's three to one, right? It must be three times the size of the defending force um, to achieve success. Which you know, personally, I think is it's maybe a helpful guideline at best, and and not a rule, of course. But regardless, Israel estimates that there are, I think they said 30,000 Hamas fighters in Gaza. I've seen other estimates that are as high as uh, 40,000. If you just want numerical superiority, then from an Israeli perspective, that's a lot of forces to marshal uh, for this operation. When you add on top of that, the the sort of tooth to tail ratio considerations, the number of enabling and supporting forces uh, that will be required um, in addition to those purely combat forces, we're talking some really large numbers. John, what's what's your take on sort of force size? So, you know, I love the, you, you know, I use those numbers liberally, like three to one and what you need in urban environments more like 15 to one. But where, and I agree with my, my friend Stuart Lyle at DSTL is like, that's combat force, not necessarily just number of soldiers. So absolutely, Israel needs to bring 15 times the combat force than to the one Hamas defender. That is that is what we're talking about combined arms it's not saying you need 15 infantrymen it could be but if the infantry aren't supported by armor by air power by artillery by cyber capabilities it's about how much force do you need so yes you need an overwhelming amount of force which does include a lot of infantry a lot of armor a lot more engineers i mean i think those are really forgotten about about how many bulldozers you'll need to even um enter Gaza city with, which is just one of the cities within Gaza. And in the 2017 battle of Mosul, that was almost the, the critical end item was a bulldozer. As like Liam said, you don't just need bulldozers to clear obstacles and to take punches from heavy, like anti-armor weapons in the environment. But every time the ISF stopped, they had to put a berm in front of themselves because, uh, one of the mechanisms ISIS put into their defense was industrial level, like massive amounts of vehicle borne IEDs. They would just ram at the lead force. So they had to put berms up. Well, you need a lot of bulldozers for that. So uh, you think about it as combat power. I mean, how many brigades can you fit into a city? Um, again, what type of brigades are we talking about? Combined orange brigades, how many different directions? I mean, there is actually a lot of area, but it comes down to control, uh, you know, all these other aspects, but, 15 to one. Uh, and I agree with uh, other people. It's that's about combat power, but you'll need a lot of all of it. You always need more in an urban fight in compared to other environments, right? You need more ammunition, like four to six times more, more infantry, more armor, more everything to do this mission. And the IDF has that, but now it becomes a question is, you know, if a second front opened up and all, all the other aspects, but uh, you know, that, in the 2014 mission, which had a limited objective, they they had three divisions, but I realistically they had two divisions and about ten brigades with about you know, five brigades assigned to Gaza City. Um, there is a way to do this w- without saying it just takes it takes too much. Well, that's not true. I had the chance to um, to have a conversation with Ryan Evans on the One of the Rocks podcast last week, and and he made a really interesting point. Uh, he said that you know this is the third time in a decade that an Islamist organization has achieved operational or strategic surprise on the battlefield with ISIS in in Iraq in 2014, the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2021, 
and and now Hamas with this attack against against Israel. But in each of those cases, and I think this is important, the group in question has really fought very conventionally. Liam, you were the MWI director, and John, you were the deputy director when we brought uh, then Colonel Bob Work to West Point. He was the commander of of the Army Brigade, Second uh, Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division that uh, had been the lead in, in working with the Iraqi security forces during, in the lead up and during the Battle of Mosul. When he, when he was at West Point and he spoke to cadets and faculty during that visit, uh, you know, one of the key points that he really, really emphasized was that ISIS fought like an army. If Hamas also chooses to fight on, on the defense, even remotely conventionally, does that, does that change anything from, from a planning perspective? Yeah, I mean, before going there, I mean, that's really what led to the kind of the operational failure of the of the of the Hamas attack to begin with. Is they built up capabilities, right? This iron uh, iron dome, iron wall that were really good anti terrorist, right? Defensive measures. They could stop rockets when they were being launched at you know thirty, forty, uh, you know, in an hour, or right. The wall was extremely effective against suicide bombers, but not so effective as a defensive measure against Hamas when you think of them as a military organization on your border with a stated goal of of defeating you. And so I think it's that you've got to think of this. These are hybrid organizations right now. You can't think of them as, hey, it's purely a terrorist organization. This is an insurgent organization. This is a conventional military Right. These are hybrid organizations. And when we talk about a hybrid war, I mean, that's what it is, an organization that can quickly come together and mass forces to look like a conventional force and fight like a conventional force. But then kind of then just blend back in the population, fight like an insurgent, which is extremely challenging as we found in Iraq and Afghanistan, or as a terrorist organization and deploy suicide bombing attacks. And so it's really thinking of it that way. And they're not going to fight in the city as a conventional force because that's you know, pretty foolhardy exposing themselves to put them at greater risk. So in there, it's probably think of them more as an insurgent and, and, and what is the most challenging way that an insurgent or a terrorist organization can fight. And that's how it, I would expect them to fight because that's how they fought in the past. So that's where you're going to have the booby trap, suicide bomb, suicide vehicles, right? Using civilians as shields, right? Because one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, the operation in 2009 into the Gaza lasted 15 days. In 2014, it lasted 19 days. The Israelis know that there is a the clock is ticking on how long they can conduct this operation uh, just because of any operation in the city uh, is going to cause significant collateral damage. It's going to cause a lot of civilian casualties. You can't help it. It's war. And at some point, they're going to feel pressure to stop the operation uh, and Hamas uses this to their favor by putting their headquarters in churches, right, mosques, whatever, and, and hospitals and, and using these things against it to, to build that political pressure. So part of the planning is to know I only have limited time and I have to be as quick and effective as possible against somebody who's going to be using as many dirty tactics and, and using the rules of war against us. Yeah, you wrote a, a fascinating op-ed in the LA Times about that a handful of days ago, you know, Essentially saying, you know, not picking up on on signals of of this large scale Hamas attack was, you know, it it was immediately described as an intelligence failure. But in the op ed, you describe it as an operational failure to to really understand the precise you know nature of the threat that Hamas uh, Hamas posed. John, I want to ask you uh, a question about time. You wrote an article that we published on on the specific challenges that 
that Israeli forces would encounter in Gaza in the event of this ground offensive that I think most of us expect. You described a number of them quite precisely, a number of these challenges, but you close the article by saying that the backdrop to all of this is time, the availability or unavailability of time to achieve specified objectives. Can you describe how, you know, I guess how that variable computes, factors into this and and, and affects the conduct uh, and outcomes of, of any offensive? I mean, that's a complex equation, John, right, of how many uh, civilian casualties can be removed from the urban environment, which is a classic first step to attacking the city um, in accordance with hum- humanitarian law. They're already doing that. How much uh, w- it isn't all international actors uh, that time matters the most. The U.S. is one of the bigger ones, but then all the regional actors of this operation. I, I mean, I think the 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 ISIS question about their capabilities is so usually urban defenders lose. Like so, I, I've I've accepted that from my urban scholar fellows, uh, but that that's not always true because of time. Right. So you don't have to. Yes. If you tr- if your if your mission is to defend urban terrain forever. Yeah. You're probably going to you know, lose um, for a couple of reasons. Or, but that's always not true either. But a lot of times the defender is just trying to buy time. Hamas will absolutely be trying to buy time for that political will to run out and for s- the international community to stop, to tell uh, Israel to pull back because of these reasons, for other actors to join the fight because of it. But one of the disadvantages to that Hamas strategy is their ability to resist a combined arms fight. ISIS had two years, not just to prepare the defense, but they had two years of complete freedom of building defensive positions. And that meant they, and I agree with uh, Colonel Work when he came in, they built a, a, like a, a really, a very impressive urban defense, a layered urban defense that included principles of the defense, uh, and they combined area defense with mobile defenses. Hamas has not had that capability outside of their vast tunnel networks, which we just published on the model warranty this morning, the details to that, which is a unique challenge, but Hamas has not been given free reign on the surface level to put in all the things that you need to slow a def- an attack down all the complex obstacle belts, giant tank ditches, giant obstacles of r- removing all the roads and routes in there. So that actually goes for IDF's ability to do this operation quicker. Absolutely. It'll take time. I have no idea how long it will take, but uh, I am, I do want to sp- express that Hamas has a strategy. And one of those is to slow the, the attack down and to a slow a, com- a combined arms force with this amount of overwhelming power down will be a significant challenge for Hamas. Well, John and Liam, uh, I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thank you again for, uh, for joining me and for sharing some of your, your thoughts and, and your insights with listeners. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter slash X, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.